Welcome back, everybody. Ortho Talk Podcast, episode number seven. This week, we are joined by Dr. William Bill Weiss, <clears throat> who is a good friend of ours uh, from his time in Galveston, doing his third fellowship. That's right, third fellowship. Uh, Bill is originally from Canada and moved down to the U.S. when he couldn't get a job in Canada, and we talked about that on the podcast, too. Completed three fellowships total and is now a uh, clinical professor at the Texas Tech campus in El Paso. And at the School of Medicine over there, specializing in sports medicine and foot and ankle. Uh, we talk a little bit about sports medicine, uh, get into some of the dark side of business, of healthcare, and, uh, you know, just pretty fun podcast overall. So give us a listen. If you enjoy uh, the show, you leave us five stars on whatever platform you're listening to. See our website, www.orthotalkpod.com, for any old episodes. And uh, without further ado, Bill Weiss. All right, fresh out of the operating room, Bill Weiss. Bill, thanks for coming in, man. My pleasure. Oh, Bill. Uh, Literally so, fresh out, it's true. Yeah, so you were doing an ACL? I did a, a superior capsule reconstruction this morning Ooh. and then an ACL revision this afternoon. Really? Yeah, and so, I, I booked an ACE for three hours, which is probably stupid. <laughs> no, I mean, SER can take a while, right? Was, was this uh, like yeah. an actual candidate or were you like, yeah, like no, no. stretching the limits? Much? I have to. Yeah, how many have you she done? I had a previous uh, previous rotator cuff by myself, actually. She's one of my first revisions of my own work. Uh, oh, yeah? She was tight when I fixed her, and bone quality was poor, and she retore and retracted. And so yeah. we did ACR. And there, the ACL wasn't one of mine, but uh, but it's something that ends up coming my way, uh, which I yeah. like. It's an interesting case, good challenge. We'll grab so what do you prefer, the shoulder or the knee? Uh, probably the knee. Uh, I like shoulder, and I'm not willing to give it up. Uh, and I also do hip and foot and ankle, as you know. So I, I kind of like to do all three. But but knee is probably my favorite. Yeah. Other than foot. What? Other, Other than, than foot. foot. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll give you all the foots any day. Oh, <laughs> if I had someone to give the foots to, I would. But I like the, the instability, the sports foot and ankle. I like. Um, but the rest of it, it's interesting, but I could live without it. So you're not a diabetic guy? No, I, I don't nope. mind charcoal. I think it's interesting, but it's very challenging and very unrewarding. <laughs> as you guys know, it's it often doesn't end well. Uh, yeah, it's hard to try. It's a very challenging condition, but in that, it's interesting at least. So, Bill, you're the I think the second second guest we've had on that's done two fellowships. Well, no, you've done three. I have three. Yeah. You've got three, so you're, you're winning now. Tell us about I, I did, your yeah, I, did, I did a uh, sorry, uh, sports in Canada. And then sports in Dallas with Alan Barber, and then the foot and ankle at UTMB where I met you guys. Yeah. Wait, three. Yeah, I know I'm sports, abnormally sports is trained. Your favorite, obviously. Huh? Sports, sports is your favorite, obviously. Yeah, I did. I always wanted to be a sports guy. The foot and ankle. I at that time I, I had planned to go back to Canada still at that point and couldn't okay. find a job and was basically scrambling for something to do and Punch Bobby had an opening at UTMB for his foot and ankle fellowship. Yeah. I had an offer Took for it. a shoulder fellowship in Dallas, but I already felt like I can do shoulder. Uh, uh -huh. I might as well add something new to my armamentarium. So I decided to go to, to UTMB and do that, which yeah. I mean, honestly worked out really well. I, I really enjoyed my time there. I still have a lot of friends there, including you both. I really, for the first time in a long time, felt like part of the team rather than just the fellow that was yeah. Yeah, plus you heard about these these great residents that were over there. and There were some pretty great residents. You, you, you wanted to get a taste of it. On stage. <laughs> yeah, so how much how much foot are you doing right now in your practice? Not a lot. I, we much, don't huh? have a foot guy here. Um, I do probably, I would say, 75 to 80% sports. Uh, uh -huh. And then probably 
you know, 20, I mean, the, the last 20 to 25% is a, between trauma and foot and ankle. And uh, we have two trauma people here other than myself that take most of it. So I'll kind of stick to the stuff that I'm comfortable with. So it's probably maybe 10 to 15% of my practice. I tend to get the, like just today, I saw a lady who was treated by a, a podiatrist here in town who had a hallux valgus correction that is now uh, not only non-union with an AVN of the metatarsal head, but also infected. And so, you know, they were like, well, there's no one else in the city who does foot and ankle. You got to go see this twice guy. Cause huh. I literally am the only other AOFAS certified surgeon in town. Wow. There are wow. two base, but they're military. So the civilians can't get to them. So are you doing really total ankles out there? What's that? Are you doing total ankles out there? I, I am not. I'm looking for the right patients still. I think if I found one, I would, but I don't like joint replacements. I'll be, I'm, I like to fix things with tissue and you know bone and screws and plates i don't like to put metal and plastic into people if i can avoid it so so even knees and shoulders i'll do but i don't like it so i don't seek it out yeah you don't I have shoulder replacements as you know it's a very limited indication and you know the the average el pasoan is not a great candidate for uh <laughs> for a total ankle but i have done a lot of ankle fusions here ttc nails uh, in particular nice tell us about the healthcare environment in canada what's that like for all of us, all the United States listeners who yeah. think you're the biggest and baddest, you know, country, let's give us a perspective, the Canadian perspective. Uh, it's <laughs> basically the same. I mean, everybody gets all excited about the socialized medicine aspect of it. It's not any different than here, uh, for the most part. The funding is very different. So everything in Canada works under the Canada Health Act, which basically governs healthcare for the entire country. But each province, like each state, manages its own business, basically. And so the way it works is all the money and anything that is considered essential is paid for through the health act. And so if you have a broken ankle or whatever, it's covered. Uh, the only things that aren't covered are things that are deemed unnecessary because there's a lack of evidence or whatever. And, and those kinds of things you can go, you know, I guess, get someone to do it if you wanted to, but they, they won't pay for it. Uh, it is actually illegal for a surgeon or a doctor to charge for a service that is provided under the Canada health act. Um, so there's no private pay systems or you can't give them, you know, pay cash or whatever. It all has wow. to go through the system. But so all that is the complication. And this was created in the 60s in a very different time in medicine. As you can see those books behind me, Campbell's at that time was like two books. And now it's like six books or five books. I don't even know. So like the number of things we do has expanded. And so the Health Act hasn't changed. So there are a lot of things in that act that are not covered because uh, because they weren't in existence in the 60s. And the money it just isn't enough anymore to, to do it all. So that's why Canada's in its health crisis, which they're, you know, kind of managing by limiting the number of doctors, limiting access, but the access is also limited just by access to physicians. So, so the way things work there in general is things like trauma and cancer, just like here, you know, that gets taken care of. There's no, no question you go to the ED, it gets taken care of next day or day of if it needs to. The things that are suffering and are different is the elective side. So what I do and you guys do, sports, foot and ankle, things that are elective, patients can wait two to three years for a knee replacement in some parts of Canada because there's no access to a surgeon because the system doesn't employ enough of them to make these things happen in a timely fashion. So, so the bad things get taken care of. Uh, it's the elective stuff that suffers. And for a guy like me who would do elective stuff, uh, there's not a job because the system doesn't want to hire a guy who's going to be another draw on the system. And that's why it's very difficult for, for Canadians to find jobs when they do sports and uh, foot and ankle and stuff like that. But even in general orthopedics, there's a push 
to hire more orthopedic surgeons because we we are one of the lowest per capita doctors per person in the in the world. Like, I think we're in the top ten. I think of lowest per capita doctors per population. Who who wow. makes those decisions on what's covered? Yeah. Is there a committee? It's Is run there by a board the or something? It's it's the government. So the Canadian government. Uh, this was enacted in the '60s. And the government adopted it, and then they dole out money to each province to manage their care, and their the provinces mm-hmm. will use it for hospital care, for doctor pay, for you know various parts of healthcare, drugs, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's they they're the ones that manage it. And but there's an act that was created to manage healthcare, and so everything that is done is in accordance with the Canada Health Act. Gotcha. So you're not yeah. you're not the only uh, doctor on orthopedic surgeon I know who's left Canada to come to the U.S. Oh, a lot. Hey, yeah. There are, at, at a year ago, there were over 200 fully trained, fully certified in Canada, uh, orthopedic surgeons who couldn't find work. And so all of us tend to do, you know, I know people, I've done three fellowships. I know people who've done two, three, four fellowships. Some have done two fellowships and a PhD. Some are taking job sharing positions with older surgeons who are working towards retirement and want to, you know, give up their trauma call, for example. Many of the jobs that I was offered were, well, you can take my trauma call and I'm going to do my elective practice. And then when I retire, you can take that. And that, I don't know how long that would have taken. When I took this job here in El Paso, I had been out of, uh, out of Houston for three, four months. And in that time period, all I was able to secure was a two-week locum in small town Ontario to do their trauma for two weeks. So if I hadn't come to El Paso, I might still be on my mom's couch, like trying yeah. to find work. And, Jeez, man, you know, that's crazy. Yeah, we had what's a the, we had a, a what? I mean, what's the solution for this this issue in Canada? Is there any any solution coming up on the horizon? I, I don't know because having worked in both systems now, there are problems with this system as well that you're both very aware of. Yeah, uh, we, I don't know. I I think I think, and this is just opinion, of course, but I think Canada needs to either mix private and and uh, community medicine, like mix the private and public system so that the private system funds the public system so that they can hire more doctors to see these patients. I, I, I tell you, and I'm not lying, that it's like two to three years wait for people to get a joint in some places. And I get texts all the time from guys that I used to play football with, like, hey, Bill, this is my MRI. I tore my ACL. Like, what should I do? And who can I see? And they wait like a year to get in. So, so I think the solution is money, but that's not really a good solution for many things, as all of us know. So, so I, I don't know. I think the system needs to be updated. Uh, it was built in the 60s, and in the 60s it worked well through the 70s, maybe into the 80s, but then it started to break down. This is not new. This has been happening for a long time. So the problem is, is that it will require a significant overhaul, which will not probably be an easy time for Canadians. And not many politicians are going to go and say, I'm going to fix healthcare." but y'all are going to suffer for 10 years while we do it because it's going to change a lot of things to implement a private arm to a public system. It's, it's, yeah. it's a big undertaking and not something that politically is a selling point. And therefore I think a lot of people shy away from it. The, you know, people say they're going to fix healthcare, but nobody really gives any solutions up there and they continue on with the system that they have. Yeah, so we, we had a journal club this week, like about the business side of medicine and it was literally the most depressing hour of my life. Like yeah. some of the articles, like I think the recent arthroscopy uh, journal has, a, the, at least the one I presented was on cuff repairs and the difference between hospital reimbursement and physician reimbursement. 
And, you know, long story short is it was over a 10 year period and it was a Medicare database Woof, way down 200. So, so in that 10 years, well, I have the numbers here in those 10 years, hospitals. So in 2005 for an outpatient rot- rotator cuff repair, hospitals reimbursed 65% more than surgeons 2014 or 15, 255% yeah. more than surgeons. Yeah. So so That's this is the ugly side of medicine in the U.S. Yeah. Medicine in the U.S. is run by insurance companies. Yeah. And so you and I do stuff and, you know, there's a big move towards bundled payments, stuff like this. So as an example, you know, my my cases today, like how are those bundled? I don't I don't even know because I don't bill. I, I get yeah. a salary, which is nice for me, uh, but I don't make as much money as my private colleagues. But I don't have to worry about these things uh, because of that. But, you know, my my shoulder today probably took too long and the bundled payment probably we would have, I don't know, I would have lost money if I was a private surgeon. Or I think if you look at what private surgeons do, sometimes they tend to do the bread and butter, quick, easy, bang, bang, bang. I can get yeah. six ACLs done in a day and I'm out. They don't do the revisions. They don't do the superior capsule reconstructions. They don't do the multi in the knees because those don't pay well in RVUs for the amount of time you have to put into them to do them properly. And the system here is run by the insurance company. So they're, they're taking some off the top. The, you know, if you look, there's that graph that's widely circulated on the internet about administrative payments are going up, yep. doctor's yep. payments are staying level, and the yep. cost of healthcare is going up. And I mean, we're not making more money, we're making less money, probably. Yeah. So where is it going? And have I, well, I'll tell you where it's going. It's going yeah. to the to the administrators. I was going to let you say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the problem. I mean, yeah, that that chart you said is crazy, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's mentioned in the article too. In that ten year yeah. span, two million just a gross number, 2 million people increase in healthcare, 40% were non-clinical, basically admin, yeah. 5%. Yeah, you don't go into medicine to make money anymore. It's, it's not a money-making you thing. And, you know, you and I, we all know that our home life suffers and, you know, our wives are mad yeah. at us because we're never there, <laughs> but we're just trying to do what we're supposed to do. And we don't get paid anymore to do it. I don't get paid extra to do, uh, you know, 12-hour day if my cases go long. Somebody does, but it's not me. It's not you. Yeah, it's not. And it, you know, that's no, the scary part because I don't get those fancy cars in the fancy parking right, lot. Right. It's, yeah. it's disincentivizing physicians, right? Yeah, in the end, the patients are going to be the one that suffer because they're just going to keep patients dropping our charges. I don't think they don't, the patients yeah, they don't, know. They don't understand yet. They don't understand the ins and outs of this. Not yet, but, but I agree. With you. I think the administrative cost of medicine has gone up significantly. Right. And uh, and it's at the expense of of us and the patient. Well, you so know, what, if, what if people say we, we need, given how complex the healthcare system is, what do you say to people who say we need administrators to navigate these complex waters and we to do. maximize yeah, what we, we do? do. Yeah. We the other side of it is that I don't, and you don't have time to do that. Yeah, right. You know, you, we all have a chairperson or, you know, they do some administrative stuff, but the number crunching, the scheduling, the managing the CMAs in the clinic, like that kind of stuff, we don't have time for. And, even in private medicine, that the, the physicians don't do that. The board or somebody does it. Someone is appointed to do that who is an administrator. So there is definitely a role for administrators in medicine. And we need them because you and I want to fix the problems. We don't want to, you know, we want to fix the ankles and fix the shoulders. We don't want to deal with the, like, trying to collect money from patient X who can't pay or, you know, deal with scheduling this clinic. Right. Somebody needs to do that work. They're They're necessary, but... Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know if Mo, you can shed more light on this, but where is that money going? I know it's going to them, but like, 
what are they doing for it? Salaries. Oh, that, well, that's the real but question. Yeah, salary is fine, but yeah. I mean, what is what do they do to earn it? Yeah, that's the whole. And I know I haven't found a good answer. <laughs> that's the scary part. I'm not expecting an answer, but if yeah, you have that's the scary part. I yeah. I don't. I mean, I I can tell you that a lot of it's probably excess, right? And there's a lot I of fat. So. They, uh, some of them do very well. I mean, yeah. like I said, you don't go yeah. into medicine to make money. Right. You can manage a lot. Of, a lot of their salaries are public information. So for any it's listeners who want to look up your favorite administrator yeah. and Good. see that they're earning five times as much as us. <clears throat> anyway, you know, C- CEOs are making three million dollars a year now, and, oh, yeah. and it's it's a big business. Yep. I it, it's you scary a to me. Or a hospital yeah. system that is big business. Yeah. Well, it's, so it's, go ahead, Jay. I mean, the, the scariest one of the scarier things is these these uh, people in charge of this. They are tasked with cost cutting, cost savings, and maximizing profit a lot of times, and sometimes that directly competes with the interest of physicians and. And what's in the patient's best interest? So, just I mean, just a day-to-day example. You know, I got here to my fellowship, and I'm starting doing doing cases. I'm closing my my wounds, and all my sutures keep breaking. I'm like, what what is going? I didn't get that much stronger. This is just like a a very simple example that everyone can understand. And then you know, all the scrub techs and nurses are, oh yeah, you know, we here, oh god, we we went to the cheapest brand we could find. We're just trying to save money. I'm like. I could tear the suture with my like, you know, my little finger. Like this wound is going to bust open as soon as the patient moves. So look, you know, that's a very easy to understand. But the funny example. part, that's just going to cost them more money because it's going to open yeah. up in your thirty-day period, and they're going to come back, and you're going to have to fix you it. Do the and you're not going to get free. any money for it. Yeah, right. It very exactly. But yeah, so, I, I know that, those are the cost-cutting measures that are happening. Is they're skimping on, you know, clinic staff. So patients wait longer. They're angrier. They're skimping on sutures and so sutures break down and patients have to come back within their global yeah. period for another another washout or reclosure i mean it's that goodness but that happens because we've kind of lost our seat at the table and i think part of that is our fault because it's like you said Maybe. we want to we want to do the surgeries we want to take care of patients we don't want to deal with the other stuff but when we also when we, don't have time though. Yeah, yeah. yeah well yeah we, we especially don't have time when they pack our clinics and make us see more patients in less time right so yeah. it it's a self-perpetuating cycle right. that we're losing more time. We yeah. don't have time to actually speak our minds and do that kind of stuff. So it's going to, it's going to be tough to break. It's going to be really yeah. tough to break. It is. Especially, I mean, I mean, considering that medicine selects for people that we just tend to suck it up and put our heads down and work harder. Absolutely. So you're right. It's kind of our own fault. You get such great insurance. Yeah. 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 Never use it. Exactly. We'll work ourselves to the bone and die before we will use it. So they will give you a great deal. Yeah. And you know, the, the reimbursement side of things is, is are pretty bad too, because insurance companies can basically do whatever they want. And we, we can't band together and fight it yet. And I no. think that's what it's going to take. At least I don't know about the U S to be honest, but I know in Canada, so there are a lot of discussions ongoing because physician salaries in Canada have been capped and yeah. they've moved for many years. Uh, in, including inflation and they in in Ontario where I did some of my training the physicians actually don't even have a contract right now with the province because they're in they're fighting with them about it and so you have no leg to stand on and we like you said we don't get involved in these things because we don't have time we're and the other thing is we can't you can't strike because can't in strike. Canada at least you're considered an essential service yep. you're not allowed to strike yep. and most of us wouldn't want to do it anyways but mm-hmm. but they kind of they know 
this is maybe getting a little bit, you know, giving away too much, but they know what we're like. You don't get to where we get by being a person yeah. who's looking out for themselves. They know that you're going to suck it up and you're going to do what's right and best for the patient. And they can do sometimes what they want and cool. we'll put up with it because we're trying to do the right thing. For yeah. It, it's funny you bring that up because that, you know, I, I, this might be getting into my own conspiracy theories here. And I told myself I would not get into this, but <laughs> this idea of the doctor as a hero has been perpetuated and perpetuated yeah. and perpetuated. And there's a lot of truth to it because <laughs> we are pretty selfless, life. right? But uh, when you call us a hero, it puts us above taking care of ourselves, right? So we're not going to fight for our own salaries. We're not going to fight against stuff that's going to oh, affect do, patients. Right. A hero, a hero doesn't, doesn't do that. care about how much money goes home in their pocket at the end of the day. Right. It I, pre- I prefer us. the word, uh, I prefer the word savior, but I mean, heroes, okay. <laughs> no, um, yeah. It neuters <laughs> us, man. It neuters us. And we, we don't stand yeah, up for ourselves. That's and, a very good point. I have a very good friend who is a nurse in Canada still. He works in the emergency department and the nurses in Canada just, you know, similar to the doctors got hit with like, we're not increasing your salary. They're not even getting a raise in line with inflation. And, and that's one of the things that they're pointing out is the governments are calling us heroes for you know COVID and how they're on the front lines and taking care of patients that they do every day. And yet when it comes budget time, you know, the, the firefighters got a 10% raise. The police department got a 10% raise. Oh, yeah, yeah, we don't get it. nurses got 1%. Yeah. So they're, yeah. and they're up in arms about it, and they should be. They should be. And but, the doctors you know, are the same, though, up there. It's the same right. problem. The doctors don't even have a contract. Right. So. But in the U.S., if you do that, you're, you're labeled a narcissist. You're out for your own self-interest, and you don't care. And that's the, I mean, that's <laughs> the narrative. That we, yeah, yeah people you're say, well, doctor. You know, they, they say, well, you guys, you guys do well and right. girls you guys do well. Uh, and we do, we do, but we put in a lot of years and we put in a lot of hours and we give up a lot of things to do this. Yeah. And, and it's not that we're all about the money. I, we just, I think want to be treated, you know, fairly. You, like, we want, you want to be paid close to your what work. I well, <laughs> right. We no, you're, you're the only, uh, you're the only one of us three that is an actual like attending. That is on cash a salary. That's cash to check. <laughs> do you, it yes. is salary I'll have you know. <laughs> Well, do you pay for your own CME courses or is that helped uh, so, you for a better so hospital? This or? is one of the this is another whole discussion we can get into, but the benefits of working in academia versus pub or private practice. And so I work for Texas Tech, uh, which is obviously a university, and so I get uh, a salary and I get a certain amount of money every year for courses or education. I get a certain, you know, sick and whatnot, uh, which is good when you're in the private world and you run your own business and you pay for the roof around you. You know, I have an office that I don't pay for. I have an administrator and administrative assistant I don't pay for. In the private world, you pay for those things. So if you take a vacation, they still need to be paid. Your office still needs to run. Uh, so there's, you know, there's two sides to this. So, so I do have an allowance every year that I can use for, you know, courses and whatnot. I get a salary. I have an administrative assistant. In the private world, you don't get those. So you pay for that yourself. If you're not at work, you're losing money, some people will say. Uh, so they shy away from uh, research and going to conferences sometimes. So that's kind of one of those decisions you have to make going forward is what do you want to be? And if you want to be a guy that makes money, academia is probably not the place for you because yeah. I can tell you my salary is – is average at best it's not it's okay and it's certainly more than most of this country makes but there are probably 
five or six guys in this city who make more than me and probably don't have a fellowship or maybe have one or whatever. Yeah, well, that those that two hours you spend writing a paper, that, that could be – You don't get paid for many, that. Many thousands of dollars if you're in private practice. That's like right? an hour is like yeah. two knee scopes. Yeah. You could yeah. Meet. I don't know what that pays, to be honest with you, but probably more than I get. You got to like it. Yeah. You got to like it. Yeah. But, degree. I mean, there's there's a positive to academia too, and I think, uh, I mean, you two are both in academia. I'm probably gonna end up in academia. I don't know, um, but you know, you get opportunities afforded to you that you don't get in, especially in the sports world, right? I mean, you cover teams, right? Yeah, but that also is not so that in so then in this city, the 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 well, I cover the pro soccer team here. We have a pro baseball team that's covered by someone else, but nothing really happens in baseball. Uh, and then there, yeah. we have a university here that is Division One, the Texas uh-huh. El Paso Miners, and so they're covered by the private guys who've covered it for years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the you know I don't know what happens in Texas Tech Lubbock, but just because I work for the university doesn't guarantee me that I'm going to cover the right. team. I would hope so, and in many places it does. But it's honestly covering sports teams is more of a I will pay you this much to cover your team right. thing mm-hmm. than it is like yeah. that guy because we like yeah. him. There's a, definitely a business side to it that in, is different in every city. That's a pretty dirty business side too sometimes. Yeah, well, I would assume right. so. It can, it can be. be. I mean, it's, it's big it can business. Be. And people pay a lot of money to be on the sidelines and say, I'm the doctor for Team X. Yeah. Uh, and it's not necessarily based on merit, but, uh, but most of them are good physicians, obviously, or they wouldn't be there. It's, but yeah. it is a, many times a money thing. We're, we're going to pay to be your physicians. The teams make money on that. It's not, yeah. you know, it's not that they go out and find the best orthopedic surgeon in the city. They, well, they, well, they do, but it's after they get injured and after you see them first and yeah, diagnose so they'll them. do yeah. that. But the guys on the sidelines are not right. that guy or girl. Right. They're usually right. the people that pay to do it. Yeah. I don't they, like, I mean, I, that drives me nuts, but, yeah. but that's the way it works here. In Canada, it's all volunteer. Nobody gets any money for it. So when I was a fellow, I was covering pro football, which I know uh-huh. it's Canada, but, and pro hockey. <laughs> And that's volunteer. They don't get paid for that, and they take care of the athletes. It, it is prestigious, but it's not like it is down here. Down here, people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to be the docs for, you know, the Houston Texans or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's not the way it works up there. So, so that's been frustrating. You know, my, my soccer team, the way that worked out is Texas Tech said, well, we will pay the salary of your, your trainer, and we will provide you with physicians. Right. And so we right. – and we'll be at your beck and call yeah, and, we'll, and we we'll pick up the phone at midnight and yeah. all they, that kind of they'll stuff. They'll give you a list. And it, it, is, it, is, it is difficult. It's a lot of fun, but it's a lot of work as well. Like they, yeah. we, they call and they need something. Joey hurt his knee. We need you to have a look at it. And, you know, they, they'll either come to clinic or you go to them. And, yeah, and they, they do expect VIP treatment because you're their physicians. And they get it. Otherwise, they wouldn't stay. Right, right. Mo, that sounds terrible. Why are you? Why are you going to do that, Mo? I, I, I don't know. I, I like that side of it, kind of. I like the. I think it's fun. It can, ha- it can be fun. But you're right, Bill. I mean, there's, there's times where. And I love it. I mean, I was an athlete, and I know you guys yeah. are athletes as well. And that for me is like the most fun part of my job is being on the sidelines and you know, kind of messing yeah. with the guys and girls a bit, and just being in that atmosphere. It's I, fun I to be. It's fun to be a part of the team. Yeah, it is. And they, you know, they come up and, hey, doc, thanks for coming. Shake your hand. And, you know, they, they appreciate that you're there for them. Uh, but it is a lot of work. And it takes away from, it's outside of work. Mm-hmm. Games are on the weekends. They're at night. 
you know, Friday nights, you're covering football games. Saturday night, there could be a soccer game, and you're there for five, six hours. Do you have to travel much? Um, I don't. It depends on the league. Uh, the league, the soccer league here, the, the home position covers both teams. So oh, we don't okay. travel. Yeah. So it's like, it's like basketball, pretty much. Yeah. I've, I have traveled with my high school football teams here a few times, partly for interest sake, but partly because they asked we in this league, we play uh, the Permian Panthers of Friday Night mm-hmm. Light. So I took a trip up with my yeah. high school team to go and be on the field at Permian, yeah. which is pretty cool. But even in the pro leagues, like the NHL, the home team covers, uh, the doctors don't travel unless it's playoffs. In the NFL, right. it's variable, I think. In the NBA, I'm not really sure. NBA is its home team, pretty much. Yeah, and that and makes the most sense. Until it's a playoffs. When I was a fellow, we, we would cover all the home, and then whoever was home for our team, when they traveled, mm-hmm. would cover it, in, except for playoffs, but even then sometimes. Yeah. How much do you get to enjoy the game when you're on, on the sideline or are you just focusing on who's sure. hurt? Not, usually not much happens. In, in the U.S., most teams have trainers who handle most things, and they're very good. So I usually just stand back unless, you know, something obviously bad has happened, I will go. But usually I let the trainers go, and they will assess the patient and bring them off and say, oh, it's nothing, or, hey, doc, can you have a look at this kid's knee? And if they can't bring them off, they'll wave me on and, the soccer team, I probably ran onto the field maybe three or four times this year. And we had a signal where, you know, the trainer would say, I need help. And it was either because there were multiple players or something bad, and I would go out. But usually you just sit there, and they handle most things. And then, you know, at the end of the game, you assess it and see what you think. But it, it's pretty rare, as you know, that we have something bad happen in sports, fortunately. But mm-hmm. most of them like the reassurance that we're there or something does. Yeah. Yeah, they. Whenever we did our like spine uh, backboarding, like uh, yeah. practices, it was always soccer for some reason. It was always someone like hitting their head on the on the goal yeah. post or something. There, have you had that? Yeah, we had Talking a few instances that. of guys hitting heads, and we didn't have to backboard any. We've only had one season here with our pro soccer uh-huh. team. We had no backboarding. I did go on, like I said, two or three times, and it was mostly for head-on head collisions. And yeah, players were down, and the trainer would go to one, and I would go to the other kind of thing. Um, yeah. But fortunately, knock on wood, we've been pretty lucky in terms of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you miss hockey at all? Um, I do. I mean, hockey is probably my – hockey and football, are, and I mean American slash Canadian football, <laughs> are my two favorite sports. And I think hockey is where my heart is, but football is what I played. So, so I do miss hockey. Yeah, I watch it on TV. I pay extra to watch it on the NHL network. My team is the Edmonton Oilers from where I grew up. Uh, we do have a pro hockey team here in El Paso, actually. Uh, they're called the Rivals, and they're pretty good. Uh, but I don't cover them. Someone else does. And we have a UTEP has a hockey team as well, but they don't have any position coverage. I've been working on getting that arranged. Uh-huh. I miss going to games. I, I go to Dallas every now and again or Phoenix because it's close. Uh, I've taken my wife to see a couple games up in Phoenix when the Oilers come to town. Nice. There's yeah, rumors man. of Houston getting a hockey team. We'll see what happens. But. Yeah, I keep hearing that. I, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've been in the, in the talks for quite a while. They used to have the arrows. The arrows used right. to be. Jordy Howe played. Yeah. Oh, yeah. they called the Houston humidity. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Good one, dude. Intimidating. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah man, I, I went, to, uh, I went to a hockey game uh, for the first time in my life this year. Really? And uh, Yeah, I thought it was going to be really, like, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to be right up against the class. There's going to be people throwing punches, like faces getting <laughs> shoved in my face. And instead, my attending who paid for us took us up to the skybox. We were like 300 feet above everyone. Yeah. All I did was eat and go home. 
like, this, is not, this is not the experience no. I wanted, man. You got to get down you know? where you can bang on the glass and, yeah. It, it's, that's, that's the experience I was looking it's for. It's expensive, but it is an experience. When I was a fellow in Edmonton, because that's where I grew up and that's my hockey team, I got to do my fellowship there. And it was amazing to be on, you know, we didn't sit on the bench, but we would hang out behind the scenes in the dressing room. And then I bought tickets to just go sit because I'd never been to a game. I grew up when Wayne Gretzky was there, so you couldn't get seats. So I could go this time and sit like at the front. And it was pretty amazing. I really enjoyed it. I took my mom to a game when she came to visit and my brother as well. So it, hockey's kind of in our blood, as you know. And, uh, my family is big hockey and football fans, but Canadian football predominantly. Awesome. So being a being a Canadian and now a, a Texan, is your accent going to change over the years? What I, you, think, I think noticed? it already has. I mean, you guys can probably hear some Canadianisms. Uh, when I go home, they oh. tell me that I sound like a Texan. I, I know that I'm somewhere oh. in the middle. I, I'll be honest. So I watch a lot of stupid Canadian TV shows, of course. One of them is the Trailer <laughs> Park Boys, which I don't know if you guys have ever checked out. I've heard of it. I've never watched it. Any. Uh, which are both fabulous shows, but there's a lot of swearing. So <laughs> now when I watch it, I can hear when they say about, I can hear it. That, oh yeah, that's how we say it. Whereas before, <laughs> before I got to the US, I never would have picked that out. And I, I, I'm somewhere in the middle now. The Canadians think I talk like a Texan and the Texans still can tell that I'm Canadian, but not all the time. I'm blending in. So how long have you been in practice now? It's been... Uh, I started... Four so I years? Five years? 27. <laughs> And so I, I did my three fellowships with the yeah. addition of a year for visa issues. So I basically fellowshiped for four years. I started wow. practice here in 2016. So That's I guess amazing. I'm about four, almost five years in. Yeah. How, how's, how's it been? Four years now looking back? Uh, it's, I mean, I, I've enjoyed it. It's been fun. I, I've done a lot of cool cases here, I think. This place gets a lot of really crazy stuff. And there's, you know, we're the only level one trauma center for 400 miles. So we get a lot of crazy trauma and stuff that gets neglected that, you know, I've done a double meniscus transplant that I presented at UTMB when I was back. Yeah, I saw that. I'm probably like 50 cool. multi-ligament knee injuries, which is absurd. That's a lot. Years, I think like most people do like 10 in their careers and I've got yeah. like all these multi-ligament knees, uh, a couple of capsular reconstructions, shoulder reconstructions, some, you know, weird trauma. I've, I've even done... I don't know how common this is, but I had a kid earlier in the year who had both a three tendon rotator cuff tear and a complete labral tear at the same time, like you a pan tear with all three cuff muscles torn. And he was 30. Oof. Like, how does this even happen? Wow. How, so stiff, did, how stiff did he get? Huh? How stiff did he get? Oh, very stiff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so the problem here is we lose our patients to follow up because uh -huh. a lot of them are uninsured or come from that wide radius and can't get back in to see us. So, you know, the follow-up is limited, which makes research difficult. But, but we do get a lot of very, like, almost third-world pathology that you don't see in the usual U.S. city because it gets taken care of. But here, people don't have insurance or don't want to go to the doctor, so they wait two, three, five, ten years, and then they show up when things are horrible. and You're like, what do I do with this? Yeah. So it's interesting. It's challenging. Um, what's been the biggest fun. challenge for you? Um, I don't know. Everything's been I think, easy. You know, I'll be, I think the biggest challenge yeah. for me has been adjusting to, to the life of being an attendee. Yeah. Uh, I, I did my fellowships and I had like four years where I really had little responsibility. I mean, I'm a fellow. I come in, go home. Yeah. If I don't want to be on call, I don't. 
now that's not the way it is and you know it, it, the life the responsibility is more and you you're you know you're the guy if if, if it's 5 30 and you need to go you can't because you got to finish yeah so you know, i think so that's the adjustment what advice would you give to people in our shoes that we're about to become attendings in a few months I mean, you guys, I think you guys know what to do. And I just, I guess the the thing I always think about is, well, you know, if I don't do this, am I going to be able to sleep tonight? Or am I going to think I didn't do the right thing? And I think you guys already know how this works. It, you know, do, you just do your right, do the right thing, do your best. And, um, you know, whatever happens, happens. But if you do your best and do what you think is right, what else can you do? And do your best to maintain your family and everything, but sometimes they're going to suffer and that that's hard. Um, it kind of comes with the territory, unfortunately, and try to make up for it in other ways, I guess, if you can, but that's been an adjustment The the time commitment and, and you just don't, you don't have anybody to ask questions to also sometimes like now, you know, you don't have your attending here saying, what do you think? Okay. Yeah, that's right. Do that. Or no, that's not yeah. right. Do that. Now it's up to you. And I was telling the residents that today, my resident, like I, Sometimes you just don't know what to do and you have to make a decision, uh, but you're not sure what's right. So that's hard. But again, I, when I go home, if I feel like I did my best, I feel like I did the right thing. You know, I didn't get lazy and, you know, oh, I'm not going to fix that. They'll be fine. You know, do, do what you would do if that patient was your brother, or your sister, or your mother, father. And I think that's all you can do is your best. Wise words. Clear your conscience. Yeah. Well, yeah. You mean, you, yeah. I, we all, I think we all know this or we wouldn't be here anyways. Like most of us, that's what we do anyways. It's not a stretch. It's just, it gets harder when you're tired and you have a lot of other things coming down on you at the same time and no one to you know tell you what the right thing to do is, but, but we, you know what the right answer is most times. Yeah. Hey Bill, how, how, different, final, were your, how different were your two sports fellowships? Um, different sports fellowships in Canada tend to be more operative. And so my, my fellowship in, in Edmonton was there were eight attending surgeons and me, and I was the only fellow. So for the first three quarters of it, I probably just spent every day in the OR, which was great. Uh, the sports coverage is limited. The guys would cover the Oilers and the Eskimos, which are the two pro football and hockey teams in, in the city. But that was very sparse and wasn't, you know, wasn't expected. It was a volunteer. I did it because I wanted to. Yeah. So it was very operation or surgery heavy, which is good. Uh, there was clinic as well. And particularly towards the end of it, they said, okay, well, we got to start getting into clinic too, because you can't just be in the OR all the time, even though I enjoyed it. So that's what that was like in, in the U.S. Then in Dallas, um, it was two, two uh, supervisors and they were both private practice, the fellowship I did. So there was, you know, private practice aspects to it that are very different from Canada. There was sports coverage that was required which most Canadian fellowships with the exception of one don't include sports required sports coverage. Uh, at least not that I know of, it could, be, it could have changed since I went through. Mm -hmm. So that was a big difference. And, uh, but then just the private practice side of it was very different. The multiple hospitals that you'd work at, um, but there is similar. I mean, you get the same training, you do the same things. Yeah. I, in general Canadian sports fellowships is more operative heavy and less sports coverage, except for a couple of them. In the mm -hmm. U.S., there's the sports coverage aspect of it that is played up, and then obviously the operative experience is important too. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's with every part of ortho, but there's always like a thousand different ways to do something. 
yeah how did how did you decide what what to do in practice like like just take for example acls right yeah yeah i mean i do my acl mostly like i learned in canada and uh you know i learned some different things from dr barber that i do incorporate but i i think you you just use the point of fellowship is really just to see other ways of doing things when i was looking into fellowships my my residency people would tell me because i i had a great sports mentor in ottawa don johnson mm -hmm. the head of anna and he's retired now but he was a great sports medicine guy and they said well no bill like you you've worked with don for five years and the rest of us who were trained by don so you you know our way already so go learn something mm -hmm. else and i think you know you see what you see and then you pick and see what i guess in your limited experience works best or you think is best and then you see how it plays out And that's, I guess, what I did is I, I felt the most comfortable doing things like I learned in Canada. So that's mostly what I do for ACLs in particular. Mm -hmm. And they seem to be working. So, you know, there, there's also a saying that, you know, your, your experience most recently determines how you do things. And, you know, until you have a problem, you probably just proceed as you have been. Yeah. So, so I've been doing them with the, you know, modifications that I learned. But, you know, in Canada, that's the way I basically do it now and it seems to work. And ACLs yeah. generally are all the same. I mean, there might be some little differences, positioning or whatever. Right. I was thinking more of like graph graph choices and stuff, you know? Yeah, that, so that's a whole other discussion. In, yeah. in Canada, they get less allograft, actually, because it costs money, of course. Right. So you'll see less allograft uh, to make up, you know, thickness or whatever. Here, I can get an allograft anytime I want. It. Yeah, it's so, just in the freezer. Yeah, it's just in the freezer and they go get it for you. So... So yeah, that, that is a little different, the choice of graft. Canada tends to be mostly hamstring dominant. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you guys know, like 90% of the world does it with hamstrings. It's really just the US that does the foam, patellar tendon bone. But even that is, I think, falling out of favor based on a recent, uh, I think it was the AGS, AJSM article that uh, looked at, maybe it was not AJSM, but and somebody put out a big, you know, again, another retrospective uh -huh. review that basically shows that they're all the same, except that yeah. Collagen and bone has anterior knee pain. So, and then there's yeah. the quad side of it that's new that at the time when I was in Canada doing fellowship, I probably did two or three of them only. Uh, but now, you know, I don't so know. So, what do you use today? My go to is still hamstrings for a young, yeah. active uh, soccer player. I mean, I, I try to be patient dependent. So, my, my go to for an autograph is a hamstring, but uh, I will do a quad for a big somebody. But mm -hmm. my worry with quad is that tiny little skinny soccer player girl who has a tiny skinny little right. quad tendon taking right. you know 80% of that worries me yeah so uh, the hamstring has worked well for me and that's still my go-to I, I use a lot of allografts but not in the young patients right, uh, I'll right. use anybody over 20 particularly if they're not a competitive athlete I'll use an allograft if they're okay with it and I'm pretty liberal with supplementing my hamstring autographs and I actually have an ongoing study that will be submitted this summer that has shown nice. that in my hand hamstring autograph versus a hybrid it, they do the same and there's a lot of data out there that right. says the same so so i use a mixture but i try to in, in accordance with the literature use mostly autograph for young patients and then older patients i'll, I'll go to the allograph if they want yeah it's kind of funny because in residency i didn't do a single btb and i mean every yeah. every, every autograph was hamstring Fellowship, yeah. I've done yeah. maybe three or four hamstrings. 
Yeah. Like everything's been BTP. It's just, you know, it, everyone does something different. I guess it's whatever yeah. works in your hands and whatever gets you good outcomes. It was like the same said, for me. And Dr. Barber and I would debate this all the time because he does a lot of bone patellar tendon bones. Yeah. Like 80% of his are that. And he would always say, Bill, you got to, you know, this is the graph. This is the one. And, you know, in Canada, like I said, we do mostly hamstring. Yeah. Uh, it really depends where you train. Here in El Paso, the military guys, they're my only sports colleagues right now. They do also mostly hamstrings, but a few yeah. of them do do bone patellar tendon bone. It really depends on your your training, I think. Yeah, okay. I mean, like you said, neither of them really make a difference in the long run. Right? I, I really, yeah. The the bigger studies, there have been a few minor differences, but it's always back and forth. And the bigger yeah. studies tend to show that they all do the same. You know, yeah. they as long they as it's an really autograph in a young patient. Yeah, aside from that, but even that you could challenge. And Dr. Barber himself did a study of allografts in patients under 25 and showed that he had equivalent results with the allografts. And these really? were active patients. So I think the key, and this is what he impressed on me, is really picking a good allograft. As mm -hmm. you know, the older allografts were radiated and chemically yeah, right, right. failed. Now they're not. They're carefully treated, they're selected, and he would tour the companies and see how they treated them. And he would use particular companies only. And he showed hmm. that those graphs do very wow. well. You treat them well and he would rehab them an additional month. Uh, hmm. to, and that was his protocol. And in his hands, they did as well. In my hands so far, they've also done as well. I don't, in the times where I have done an allograft in a young active patient, they've done fine. So I, I think that will go away as we start to realize that this is really just a scaffold that is gonna become uh, a ligament. Mm -hmm. Uh, when you think about it, what's the difference between your hamstrings and, and a donor graft? Yeah, there's some of your cells in the one that you get from yourself, but your cells go into that donor graft as well and make mm -hmm. that part of you. So it might take a little longer, but I think the end result, if you think about the basic science, is probably the same. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have any data to back that up, but that's just the way yeah. it is. That's a good point. Jay, were you, saying, you wanted to say something? Oh, uh, I was wondering... <laughs> with you two sports experts um what what is the future of microfracture because i've been reading things about how it's not you know the outcomes nowadays are not as good as uh as we thought they might be and it's a relevant uh, interest to me because we also microfracture uh, in the ankle when we ankle scope so you know of course the literature in the knee is going to come out before the literature in the ankle so i'm wondering what you guys think about I, that i haven't done many I, I think it's kind of fallen out of favor now that we have some better techniques and uh, better ways to do things. The, the data is starting to show that the benefit is really short term. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do something more, then they're going to run into it <laughs> later. Now, the ankle is different. And I will still microfracture in both the knee and ankle, but probably less so in the knee. Uh, it's also usually a bigger injury in the knee than it is in the ankle. Right. And that, I think, plays into it. The smaller, the smaller lesions, you can probably do whatever you want, like less than a mm -hmm. centimeter. They're going to do the same. But it's the bigger ones that are the challenge, and that's where microfracture tends to fail. Uh, and we still don't have a great solution for that. Uh, the military here and everywhere in the U.S. still continues to do the ACI and the MACI, which they've published on that has given good results. But mm -hmm. the average orthopedic surgeon or sports surgeon doesn't have access to, you know, that kind of protocol or procedure. So we're doing, and what I think is best is the the plugs. And I I've done like allograft. Yeah, I've done and written about autograph plugs with Barber, oh. and that was his go-to. And then myself here, I've done uh, mostly allograph plugs. Yeah. And, and they seem to do well. Um, yeah, it's not perfect, but 
again, I think it's just a scaffold. And if the tissue is the right tissue, uh, you know, there are three things to consider about all these things. Even when you're growing tissue, you need the right environment, which you'll get. You need the right structure, which you'll get from an allograft. The missing component is really the, the cells, right. which right. your body will provide, but doesn't come with the graft. But it's, it, all, it's all about the graft prep, right? I mean, that's, that's really important with this. So you got to see how is it preserved? How is it irradiated? All that kind of stuff like, plays a huge part. Yeah, is right? it viable? And then the other part of it is the technical side and matching it up properly and making yep. sure you don't have ridges. Yep whatnot because that will obviously cause yeah we, we, we revised one today a patella uh, osteochondral allograft where I mean, it was a huge lateral overhang and I mean, yeah it's that that's yeah, you, pretty you painful to, you know you have to respect the anatomy and you have to respect the cellular biology which you know, both of those we're we're learning a lot about as we go uh but if you don't respect one of those factors yeah. you're gonna have a bad outcome yeah, I think I think the other thing with microfracture is that the technique has kind of started to lag a little bit. And if you look back at the original technique, it's like it's really important to one get a good, nice contained zone, and then two, the the holes you make can't just be scattered around. Like you really need holes around the periphery uh, of the. Yeah, lesion. there's probably an art to it that we've lost. To be yeah. honest, I, I think I think that's part of the the problem. One of my attendees does a lot of microfracture, but then that's his reasoning is that the the technique is what matters and a lot of the papers showing the decline aren't using the right technique you might have a point i mean i don't know it's hard to argue against yeah, yeah. I, I don't know and you don't know because when you you know as you know somebody might write up a paper you don't know what yeah you don't know on. you don't know exactly what they're doing no no uh, yeah. i don't know yeah cartilage cartilage works it's growing i mean that's there's new it's products all the, the time last well not the last but it's one of the frontiers of medicine right now that you know, Osteoarthritis is probably the biggest disabling condition in the United yeah. States right now. And if somebody could find a solution to help grow or heal cartilage, uh, it would put a lot of us out of business. And I joke with patients all the time because they always come in and say, well, isn't there a better thing now? Isn't there a stem yeah. cell or something? And I say, listen, if, if that was the truth, I would be a very rich man and I wouldn't be here anymore Yeah, because I don't have the answer for that yet. Yeah, I hear you. Um, how much trauma are you doing? You taking a lot of trauma call over there? Uh, well, especially now that we're reduced in numbers here, we're, we're, we, we have four people that cover uh, a hand and microvascular replant call. So one of our staff and one staff from outside here. Uh -huh. We have a children's hospital that is one staff from here, one from the military and myself fills in. And then we have trauma call, which is our one trauma surgeon, myself, and probably two military people. Wow. So, yeah, it's very busy, and I, I've, and I like it's that a level I, one, right? But I try to do, you know, I, I feel like I can cover children's hospital call. I don't take hand calls, especially not the microvascular side yeah. of it, but I take adult trauma call as well. I, I would say probably I'm, I don't know, it depends on the month, but like ten to twelve nights of call. Uh, it, it's it's yeah. pretty busy. We have a great residency program, and they do their best to you know, like you guys would do when you were residents, cover as much as you can until you need us and uh, put off as much as is safe until tomorrow. Um, but it, it's busy. Like I said, we're the only level one for 400 miles. So we get stuff from Mexico. We get stuff from New Mexico. Oh, geez. You know, we have we have stuff from everywhere. We get, you know, I like to call it border drops where yeah. something happens and they either can't handle it or don't aren't sure what to do. And they'll come to the border in an ambulance to say, we need to give this to you and it'll come to us and we take wow. it from there. 
You guys are right across from Juarez, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah you get a lot of shootings and stuff like that? Yeah, not a lot. I mean, it was worse before I got here, but things have increased lately. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, we get a fair number of gunshot wounds and stuff from, from Juarez, violence, yeah. all trauma, people trying to climb over the border wall that fall. Wow. We probably get one of those wow. a week. Yeah, we get a lot of trauma from there. And we have a major highway through El Paso that gets a lot of trauma, plus all this stuff from up in New Mexico and the other side of the highway into Texas. You know, the next major city from us is, I don't know, probably like San Antonio or maybe Dallas, depending on which way you go. But Yeah, you're probably right. It's a long way. Yeah. To get from yeah, you guys are out there. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff between that comes this way. Yeah, I hear you, man. That's a that's gotta be. I'm sure you get used to it, but um, yeah, it's interesting. But uh, it's I mean, I'm not a trauma guy. I like to be able yeah. to do some, but I don't want to spend all my time doing trauma call. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So I hear you. Were you there for? Were you help you out during the shooting? Yeah, yeah. I was. What, what was that like? At that time, we were nine surgeons, but only four of us were in town. I was oh, actually shoot. off on leave after the birth of my son and got a text message saying, hey, if you're in town, come in. And I told my wife, I, I think I need to go. And she was like, yeah, go. So I went and I was the, our, our trauma surgeon was on call in a case. So I went to his OR and I was like, hey, what's going on? And he was like, what do you mean? Like, I heard something happening, but you know, he'd been in the OR and the junior hadn't come back. So I went to the ED huh. and I, I guess I took over the, the triage role uh, for ortho at least and work with the trauma team. Um, so we, our residents responded in force and four of us staff showed up and we just basically divided and saw everything that we could. And we, I think in the first half hour of that incident, we took 11 patients to the operating room, not just ortho, but in general. And we were in on most of those. We saw 15 patients that day. Um, the last, there was one that actually died a month ago. Uh, he had been in hospital since that day on August. Oh, wow. Yeah, he just awesome. passed away. So we have another victim. I think it's up to 23 now. Jeez. So, yeah, it was a crazy day. I, you know, I wrote a thing about it for the, I'm still obviously involved in Canada. I'm on the Canadian mm-hmm. board and I, I'm the editor for their, their journals up there. And so I just wrote a thing that just came out yesterday about like our experience and, you know, trying to pass along, like, this is what we learned from this. Um, because Canada doesn't have that kind of stuff that is yeah, often yeah. what we do. But, you know, the only way to learn from these events is, is through other people's experiences because they just don't happen that often. Yeah. So We had – Jay, were you around for Santa Fe? Yeah, you yeah. went a while back too. What yeah. were you doing then? Um, I, I, went, I wasn't uh, working when it happened. I was already at home. I heard about it. And then uh, I figured I don't know what's going on, so I might as well come in and, and find out. They didn't send a, a call for help for us or anything like that. So I went in. Um, I went to the fifth floor, which is where kind of our workroom is. And there were, I think we, they had scheduled one or two cases um, of the shooting victims. And they had, they had full coverage. They had residents and tenants in all the rooms. So, you know, I came in to look for stuff to do. There wasn't really anything to do except for donate blood you know, a little bit later, mm-hmm. uh, so I got in line for that, but it was, it was crazy. It was, uh, you know, we had some of the patients in Galveston. I think they shipped some to Clear Lake as well. Yeah, they so heard about it. One facility. But it's, it's crazy what happens so close to you, to where you live in your community. Um, you know, you, you read about in the news and here, here we have two out of three people that literally happened in our communities. 
So yeah. it's, it's very prevalent and, and scary. That can just kind of happen at any time. Yeah, I was in a spine case when it happened. Oh, yeah, you were there too. Three out of three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I was in a spine case. I was going all day. And uh, we, I just kind of heard about it through anesthesia. We were, like, talking about a shooting, yeah. a school shooting. I'm like, oh, that stinks. I had no idea, like, the depth of it. And, yeah. like, I, I remember some people kind of filtered in because our attending was the chairman. So he, you know, kind of had to deal with some of it. But he was scrubbed in working. Like, he wasn't really, uh, you know, out there doing much. Um, and then I got out of the case, and it was already, like, six or seven at night. And most of the stuff had already gone down and already finished. I was like, what did I miss? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I think one of the things, I guess it depends when it happens. Like here it happened on a Saturday. So, you know, the hospital wasn't in full swing, like on a, I, it was a weekday in Santa Fe. Yeah. It was a weekday. So, I mean, everybody's at work and I guess yeah. you just deal with it like traumas and they might call a mass casualty. Uh, for us, yeah. you know, they, they had to call people in, but people came and helped like, like all of our residents came and, the hospital that the other hospital that received patients that was a level two uh, was being covered by our military colleagues and a couple of residents went there as well. So you just, I guess everybody pitches in and does what they yeah, can. Yeah. That's kind of what we do, right? I mean, same thing with COVID. We just kind of figure it out and yeah. it's done. And that's it just, goes back to what you were saying before. I mean, that's why we're, we're heroes. We are. Yeah, <laughs> pitch in and get it done and do what you is best yeah now pay us <laughs> yeah. That's the next step <laughs> i'm just kidding all right bill we got to get you out of here man Th thanks for hanging out thanks for doing my this pleasure. anytime you, yeah, bud. all right man we gotta see you yeah, soon we, we got, yeah we got fantasy football this year too so we, okay. we, we do it <laughs> all right well, all right bill thanks for having us right. and that'll do it for this week uh thanks to dr bill weiss for giving us some of his time and uh Hope you enjoyed the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at OrthoTalkPod. Uh, you could go to our website, www.orthotalkpod.com, to see all of our old episodes. If you want to uh, catch Scott Porter from last week or Chike Eko from the week before that, uh, feel free. If you enjoyed the show, uh, leave us five stars on iTunes. Leave us a comment. Tell us why. If you don't enjoy the show, shoot us an email. Www. Or, that's our website. Uh, shoot us an email, theorthopodcast at gmail.com, uh, and hope you enjoyed. Uh, we'll have more next week, and uh, stay safe, and thank you for the opportunity.